0: Calling this episode of Big Ideas a kind of philosophical therapy session. Get ready. Hi, Natasha Mitchell joining you. Are you sometimes overwhelmed by uncertainty? Or perhaps you feel a little anxious about what others might be saying about you? Or you worry about whether your carefully laid plans might get hijacked by, um, well, everything, life? On Big Ideas Today, how to stop worrying. I know that's simpler said than done, but that's where the Stoics step in. And they certainly did that for Bridget Delaney, journalist and author of Well Mania. She found herself for regret and guilt and anxiety in the ancient philosophy of Stoicism and wrote about it in her book, Reasons Not to Worry. And it all begins with the stories and images we create in our own minds. One of the Stoic philosophers, Marcus Aurelius, said, Our life is what our thoughts make it or here's one from the Greek Seneca, we suffer more from imagination than reality. Bridget Delaney is kicking off with a 101 of Stoicism, and then we'll join her on stage with Carolyn Overington at the Adelaide Festival. The main
1: principles of Stoicism, if I was to teach someone completely new to the philosophy, I would start with something called the control test. And broadly speaking, the control test says that we can only control three things in life, our character, our actions and reactions, and how we treat others. Everything else, including wealth, health, reputation, is outside our direct control. So this may sound like a, a very narrow sort of field of control, but if you think about it, it actually, it actually holds up for example I attended an auction the other day and what was within my control was you know organizing loan documents inspecting the apartment doing a number of other things but I couldn't control how many other people were at the auction I couldn't control if someone outbid me and I couldn't control if maybe at the last minute the seller decided to withdraw the property from the market so there's so many situations we go into where we don't have full control and we get frustrated or upset if things don't go our way in those situations. However, there's always going to be in those situations elements that other people control or that are just random. And if we can get over disappointment in those sort of situations, like I did in the option, then we can just move on with our lives without being kind of caught in a negative, Spiral. So that's what a lot of the Stoics were practicing and training themselves to do, which is recover from, you know, the negative or kind of undesirable things that happen in life and maximize the joy in life. Um, And the control test was a really big part of them being able to do that because before anything happened, they ran things through this control test. So once again, it's they could control their character their actions and reactions and how they treated others and that was it and um the thing that i i found like going back to the auction example is i didn't win the auction but i can control my reaction to not winning you know i can decide to not let it bother me you know in, in the way that it might have had i not studied stoicism just to move on and think about all the other good properties that might be more suitable to me so my reaction is very much within my control. They have a technique called negative visualization, which is basically every day having a little thought or, you know, just a kind of quick dwelling on the things that can go wrong. So for example, you're going to the doctor to get a checkup thinking, okay, well maybe this is the day that the doctor finds out that I've got some terrible disease. Um, Now, that doesn't sound like a pleasant task, but what it does is a number of things. Firstly, it prepares you over time for when, you know, something negative does happen, like a bad diagnosis. Secondly, if you get in there and nothing's wrong with you, you get a clean bill of help, you feel kind of more pleased and relieved because your negative imagining didn't come to pass. And thirdly, it, it habituates you to the fact that not everything's going to go right in your life all the time. And you know, there's been such a movement in the last 20 years around optimism and positive thinking, which can be great, but it also isn't reality. You know, the reality is that stuff can go very wrong and we're all going to die. You know, a lot of us will will have sickness. Um, all of us will have loss in our lifetime. All of us will have death. Optimism's not going to change that. But what we can do, what is within our control is our reactions to these bad things and that's what Boat saw 2,000 years ago. Bad things are going to happen, so what's worrying going to do? You know, worry will not change things. Uh, It just won't. It never has, never will. Being prepared is helpful, but that's not the same as as getting worried. So my book's called Reasons Not to Worry for a reason. You know, it's because the control test, says, really, the only thing you should worry about is if your character's deficient, if you haven't shown to be a good person or if, if you've cheated someone or you've acted badly towards someone, that's a reason to worry. But something that's out of your control, why worry about that? It's, it's not in your control. Just move on. So one of the things I really like, which was quite, um, you know, quite revolutionary when I learned it, was this thing called the preferred indifference. And what that is about is it's preferable to have certain things in life, but you should ultimately be indifferent to them. And those things include health, money, and reputation. They also include, you know, certain r- romantic relationships and other things, having your feelings reciprocated. It'd be great to have amazing mutual falling in love, but you can't control if someone else falls in love with you. So it's preferable. But because you can't control it, you should as- essentially be indifferent. Money is the same. You know, it's uh, money comes and goes. You could have a bad investment. You can lose your job or you could have a windfall. There's all sorts of things that are very random around money. And the Stoics, you yeah, know, they weren't into, you know, a lot of them were quite wealthy and there's a lot of wealthy Stoics around at the moment in Silicon Valley, but they believed that because money wasn't ultimately in their control they should be okay if they lose it so they practiced a lot of things like fasting sleeping on the ground being uncomfortable because they wanted to prepare for you know a possibility that they could lose that money and they could lose a comfortable house and they could lose you know nice clothes and they could lose the ability to to source good food so That is a preferred indifferent. It's preferable to have a nice meal, but you should essentially be indifferent as to whether or not the food is of a great quality or not. Reputation is the other one, which I find really interesting. Like what other people think of us is outside our control. So, you know, we spend a lot of time caring what other people think, but ultimately say what you think of me, I can't control that. I just shouldn't worry about that. I think this comes from Greek stoicism. It's a, a great word, ataraxia, and that is essentially equilibrium, being chilled, and that was really important for Stoics. They lived in times where there was a lot of chaos. There was plagues, there was war, pestilence. Children died young. Mothers died in childbirth. You know, Marcus Aurelius, for example, lost nine of his fourteen children car lost a baby when the baby was very young. So there was all this to contend with. And in order to get over it and just actually wake up the next day, they had to cultivate this ataraxia to be able to move on with life and to try and enjoy life as much as they could, even when things were really, very brutal. So this was something that they spent a lifetime practising and it involved things like um, controlling anger, controlling envy, um, not having FOMO, not having regrets, not feeling guilt. You know, it was a big focus on your character. As long as your character's okay, you know, don't worry about what someone else is doing. What they do is, is not anything to do with you and it's outside your control. So they were just constantly kind of taking their own internal temperature to make sure that they were you know, relaxed. You know, Stoicism's not something where you read one book and then you become a Stoic. Like I've spent a number of years now studying it in an informal way but definitely kind of immersed in it. And I found it's almost like religion in terms of, like I, I was brought up Catholic, like you have to keep going back to it. You have to keep the practice fresh. Marcus Aurelius and Seneca, for example, would journal each day and they would ask themselves like, how was my character today you know was was i tranquil did i react in a way that was appropriate you know or did i lose my temper or did i did i act rashly so it's a lifelong practice but it does make life easier you know it's just easier to get over the knocks it's easier to get over disappointments and that's what a lot of stoicism about is about it's about maximizing the joy in the short life that we have I put my name on a book <laughs> <laughs> saying this is the this works. It works because it's there's something very truthful about it. You know, it's it's quite harsh. It can be very hard to practice, and you have to keep reminding yourself. But these guys created this framework two thousand years ago. You know, they tested it. They wrote a lot about it. They thought deeply about these principles, and it's just sitting there. we should, I think, we should pick it up and at least try it on. And I found it does work very well in modern life. It works really well with internet culture, it works very well with cost of living crisis it works really well for our times
0: I'm Natasha Mitchell and this is Big Ideas on ABC RN. Journalist and author Bridget Delaney now joins Carolyn Overington the literary editor at the Weekend Australian on stage at the Adelaide Festival and it can be really challenging to put stoic ideas into practice in our modern lives so here is how you do it
2: I had heard of stoicism but thought it was stiff upper lip, it was a very negative thing, and it meant that you didn't show emotion. So I dismissed it. And then when I had my weekly column for The Guardian, I was, you know, uh, short on ideas. You'd know from writing weekly, it can get hard. And the foreign editor sent me a press release saying Sussex University are doing this thing called Be Stoic for a Week. It's Stoic Week. So I enrolled and was unimpressed, like it was... The reading was hard. I didn't, you know, like, who's this Marcus Aurelius person they keep quoting. I think I was trying to do it, you know, with a a bit of a hangover. Like, it was just a week of where I didn't get much out of it. And then I wrote a very kind of pretty sarcastic column about my week trying to be stoic. And I missed the whole point. I got a lot of kind of angry feedback from real life stoics saying that, you know, it was a wasted opportunity and if I actually looked into stoicism properly rather than doing a really brief one over, I'd find that it would be actually really helpful. So I took that advice on board and the following year I did Stoic Week again, but I did it with a group of friends. So we all enrolled, we got a WhatsApp group and we started really applying ourselves to the lessons and checking in with each other each day. And I found that that was like a really um, good week, but it was just really the start of a journey. And I mentioned it to a friend who, you know, really chimed with stoicism. And then we started doing a lot of kind of basic stoic work together. So um, reading a lot of the principles, testing them in conversation, which is actually, uh, unbeknownst to us, is is an ancient stoic technique of conversations with friends where you might have a problem and you say, I'm really nervous about speaking at the Adelaide Writers' Festival because there might be no one there because it's been raining. And then the other person in the Stoic kind of duo would say, well, you can't control the weather, so you don't let it ruin your tranquility and just, just carry on to the festival. So it's a very practical thing to do in dialogue with others. So that, that pattern had been established of studying Stoicism when the pandemic hit. And suddenly I was really, I wasn't just the one leaning on Stoicism, but all my friends were kind of like hitting me up saying, inject that ancient wisdom into my veins
3: (laughs) now don't jump too far ahead yeah i wouldn't mind getting a gauge from the audience so i can think about my my next question how many of you know what stoicism is if you could raise your hand absolutely most of you um and how many of you use it as practice in your life a smaller number but certainly a few all right if people come up to you bridget and they say well i don't understand what it is, what do you say?
2: So I say it's a a school of philosophy that originated in ancient Greece around 350 BC when there was a lot of philosophical activity going on, lots of different schools. And a a group of philosophers used to meet under the painted porch in Athens called the Stoa, which is how they got their name. And um, then over the years, the philosophy traveled to Rome um, where it really got embedded in the education system and the political system. Um, until you know Christianity came along and it, and it then faded out. Um, I'd say the kind of basic, I mean, everyone has a different interpretation of what the philosophy means, but I see stoicism as trying to be as realistic about life as possible, whilst also trying to enjoy it as much as possible. So it's taking off the rose colored glasses, accepting the truth that we all die, um, that we might have very hard times, but we only get one life and we should enjoy ourselves while we're here.
3: An important part of the book too is the research you've done into the um, the origins of Stoicism and the main players, mostly men. Mm-hmm. Tell us a little about that. Who were they? So, I mean, one of the sad things about ancient Greek Stoicism
2: is that a lot of the uh, work doesn't exist today. It just exists in fragments. So. Um, most of my book is about the three Roman Stoics whose work was really influential and it it is still accessible and those three guys are Epictetus, Seneca and Marcus Aurelius and the reason why um, they're really interesting is that they have completely different you know they they come at Stoicism from different backgrounds so Epictetus was a slave Um, his mother was enslaved his um, master lamed his leg when he was young so he had a lifelong disability and he didn't have a lot of control until he was freed. He had very little control over his circumstances. Um, The second main Stoic is Seneca who I kind of see as a Elon Musk or even maybe a a Malcolm Turnbull style character, self-made millionaire, highly, I mean I, I don't know if Elon Musk is sophisticated but like a sophisticated, a power broker. He was born upper middle class but really like made a huge fortune and was very powerful and then Marcus Aurelius was born into I guess the, the you know he was the Roman emperor and he was the most powerful man in the world so he he comes at stoicism from a position of absolute power and Epictetus comes from a position of diminished power or limited power so the fact that stoicism encompasses like those sort of three types of individual experiences really fascinated me. So it's those men that I I kind of focus on.
3: And and did you find yourself leaning towards one of them as a favourite? Okay, Um, well, as some people have asked, who's your stoic crush? Um,
2: You know, it changed when I was doing the book. I was obsessed with Seneca um, because he's, he's a beautiful writer. He's amazing and very sophisticated, wrote great plays. I don't know if any of you saw Thaestes. It was out here with Belvoir a few years ago incredible. And then I read these biographies of Seneca, which, um, you know, basically it was like, oh, is Seneca a bit of a hypocrite? Like, is he really walking the talk with stoicism? Because he was an advisor to Nero. So he was quite, um, he was quite complicit in a lot of like, really horrendous um, things that went on there. My absolute favourite is Marcus Aurelius. Like, I have such a soft spot for him. His um, meditations, which I'm sure many of you have read, is, was not meant to be published. It wasn't, you know it's a private diary and so it's full of this it's very personal very kind of beautiful language you know that he'd write in his tent each night when he was out on campaigns and his struggle with his temper or his struggle with his ego or his struggle with his appetites you know sexual or food and wine and so he was writing to himself often in very poetic beautiful language and he'd been Trained by a Stoic tutor since he was about three. So Stoicism was very, like, deep in his blood. And so that's, yeah, I guess he's my favourite.
3: Who's your favourite? <laughs> I'm not sure that I, I would adopt um, Stoicism for myself, which I think is why I oh. found the book so fascinating. What? I've just found I'm, it so interesting.
2: Why wouldn't you? Out of
3: well, I'll ask the questions. <laughs> I'll ask the
2: questions. Um, I'll convince you by the end of the hour. <laughs> one,
3: of, one of the um, practices in the book that I found, I guess, most challenging, and I'd love for you to explain to us, is that they recommend that you, when you think about the people you love, think about them being dead, being absent from your life. They have died. Explain to us why that was an important practice or why that is an important practice if you're going to be practising Stoicism
2: so everyone, everyone is mortal here unless, you know, there's some, some special person in the audience. Um, but look, everyone's mortal and I think when the Stoics thought that when people are taken from us, we can have this absolute shock that can be so hard to recover from that we ended up suffering twice. So we suffer the original loss and then we suffer the shock, depression, bitterness, anger, grief that could go on for a very long time and um, affect us into the future. So their technique was just when you you see someone, when you have a great encounter with someone, you catch up with an old friend, think about it like it might be the last time because it could be. And um, the result of doing that is twofold. One is you really enjoy the the person's company. You don't take them for granted. Um, You don't take their time for granted you're not with someone and checking your phone or distracted, you're really with that person. And then secondly, if you never do see them again, whether it be because they've died or because, you know, the friendship takes a different turn, you're not filled with guilt or remorse that you didn't properly appreciate that person while they were here. Like in those times, there was a lot more, I mean, obviously there's a lot more disease and a lot more random acts of violence and, you know, freaky occurrences. You just have to look at what happened a month ago in Turkey where you know, 33 or 40,000 or whatever people went to bed and then just did not wake up. So life is random and the Stoics accepted that reality and look, then looked at how to make that easier on
3: us. And have you found yourself adopting that practice in your life? So when you are spending time with people and it's joyful, you're reminding yourself all the time, this, this might be the last time.
2: Yeah, I mean, my parents were kind of a bit disturbed to see that I repeatedly refer to them in the book as, like, every time I see them, I imagine their funerals. <laughs> um, yeah. I'm really, Bridget? Um, but, you know, I think a lot of people had this situation in the pandemic where when borders were shut and you were separated from friends and family, you know, it was a possibility that you might not see that person again and you might miss their funeral. And so... Some people were pleased to have borders between families. Um, I think that's, you know, I acknowledge that. But, you know, after lockdown ended, there was this great sense of joy of people reuniting. And now I think we've forgotten that feeling. But we should have that joy all the time.
3: One of the other parts of the book, um, Bridget examines the idea of being a good person. What does it mean to be a good person? And you applied that question to yourself. Tell us a little bit about that process. Did you decide that you were... And how can you be one?
2: I mean, I am and I am not. You know, I'm like everyone, good and bad. And it's, that was a hard chapter to write because being good is, you know, I grew up in, you know, I went to university in the 90s where cultural relativism was a real thing, you know. It's like, what's good for me isn't necessarily good for you, so I'm not going to judge you on character. So when I was doing the book, I actually asked a lot of different people what they thought it was to be good. And people had pretty much the same... You know, regardless of their circumstances or where they came from, people found it hard to define, but they were all sort of in the same ballpark about what good is. And um, I kind of write in the book that good is a feeling. You know, good is a—you kind of know innately if you've done something bad, and you know innately you, you get a bit of a nice feeling if you do something good. That's your steer. You know, it's this inner sense. So, I mean, I I write in the book about how I was late to meet a friend over in Manly and I was getting the ferry and it was Easter and it was really crowded. And I smashed through a whole crowd of people going down some stairs using my elbows. And I I hit a woman really sharply in the ribs and she went absolutely ballistic. Started swearing at me, calling me all sorts of things. I managed to get on the ferry. And then at the lunch, I was like, oh, that didn't feel so good doing that, hitting that woman. (laughs) That wasn't... (laughs) And um, the Stoics have all sorts of great hacks to deal with insults, like when people are rude to you or or insult you. But, I mean, one of the things they ask you to do is, like, did I deserve that insult? Like, is that insult true? And it's like, well, actually, it was true. Goodness, yeah, goodness is a feeling. And for the Stoics, they believed it was the only thing, or one of the only things that really matters. So I can't control your behaviour or anyone else's behaviour, but I can control my own character and I can control whether I'm a good person. So people will get upset about other people's behaviour and say, that's appalling what they did. But you have no control over what someone else does. You only have control. I I mean, this is kind of going back to the first principles of stoicism. You have control over three broad things, your character, so being good, your actions and reactions, and how you treat other people. Everything else is out of your control. So being good is within your control.
3: Yeah, reactions are a really important part of the book too, the idea that you can control to some extent how you react to negative events in your life. I was reminded when I was reading it of the most magnificent um, series of tweets I think you ever sent when you lost your laptop, <laughs> which had the beginning of a novel in it and there were no other copies. Now, for many writers, this would be this is a recurring nightmare, but actually happened to Bridget in real life. I wonder if you could talk to us about how you might respond to that event now so I was coming back from the Kimberley and
2: I was tired there'd been a couple of flights got to Melbourne put all my bags down went to the loo should never do that I leave bags that is um and came back and my laptop was missing and I was just devastated I was like oh man you know and I I was thrown in a absolute spin because it had all this work on it um it was probably one of the most expensive things I owned the Melbourne airport late at night there was no one around to help me And I made my way back to Castlemaine and just for the rest of like the next week or so, um, was in real despair uh, and it really affected my tranquility. But I had sent a tweet out that night asking if anyone had seen it and Russell Crowe retweeted it to his like 50 million followers or whatever. (laughs) And so all night I had these notifications coming in from all over the world saying, "We are praying for you and your laptop. <laughs> um, we've got our church to, you know, take up a collection. Like just all this stuff." So that was really nice. Like people are good. And then um, I've never met Russell Crowe, but he was messaging me going, has anyone found it yet? You know, I'll go through the security tape." I was like, "No, no, it's cool. We'll, we'll." Um... He's like, and then he tweeted that he was giving a reward, and I was like, "Oh, this will be interesting." <laughs> And someone found it, someone who lived near me in Castlemaine, found it, um, she said her boss found it on the road, near the airport. I'm like, well, oh, okay. And she returned it to me because he'd put it in the bin at their workplace. She didn't want a reward from Russell Crowe, but uh, he insisted and she ended up flying to Sydney, going on a yacht with him and doing all sorts of fantastic things. And, and... and what prompted him to
3: intervene? I think he was just on Twitter late at night and he felt sorry for me. (laughs) And so there's an example of somebody who can do good in the world who just did. Yeah, I think um, we all can. It's funny, he did good,
2: but also if you look at, like I look at that instance and I see a whole chain of goodness except for the person that took the laptop. You know, people wanting to help me, the woman who did help me and who found it and didn't want to take anything, didn't want to reward Um, and I'm still in touch with her. We've become friends. Sometimes when you're having a bad day, even this like a meaningful eye contact with a stranger who smiles and just says, you know, I see you, or some small act of recognition is enough good to keep you going. Mm.
3: Was the novel still on the laptop?
2: Yes. So after all that palaver, um, I then revisited the novel and it was so terrible. And I'm like, I can't believe I went to all this, made all this fuss about this terrible novel. So it never saw the light of day.
3: The principles of Stoicism, would they have changed the way you had reacted or only perhaps the way that you felt about the loss of your laptop?
2: I mean, the interesting thing is about Stoicism is the changes that I've seen in myself since I started doing the book and now. And the most meaningful change is tranquility. So the Stoics were very huge on tranquility because of all the problems in the world at the time you know like children dying young you know or in childbirth you know just all sorts of things that are prevented today diseases natural disasters so because there was so much loss coming at them and so much uncertainty tranquility was the most important sort of baseline emotional state for them so that they could cope with the ups and downs, and so they had all these rules around anger, for example, and reactions, and that's the thing that I've really used the most, so if I had have been stoic when I lost the laptop, I probably would have accepted that it was gone, and not thought about it again, just gone, okay. And maybe not have gotten it back then. Maybe not have gotten it back. I mean, it's funny how the world works, but um, like it, it happens with flights, it happens with traffic, it happens with weather, anything that causes us those, you know, to tense up or those disturbances throughout the day, they're actually not within our control. And so the Stoics say, let it go, you know, like, well, it's going to rain and everyone's going to like run away from your session while you're mid-sentence. Can't control that. So yeah,
3: just chill, enjoy. And in terms of reactions to things, one of the interesting things about the book is that it applies also to really good things that happen in your life. And I'm pleased to tell you, for those who don't know, that um, Bridget's previous book, Well Mania, which was about her her search for all kinds of good practice in her life, has been picked up by Netflix. And again, that's one of the things that writers dream about, that they might write a book and Netflix will get on the phone and say, we want to make a TV show out of it. But... You describe in the book how you can have these fantastically high reactions, and I'm sure this has happened to all of you, that are then followed by these really crushing lows. And the idea with stoicism is to try to flatten that a bit. Have I got that right? Yeah.
2: Uh, The Greek word is ataraxia. So that's the sort of equilibrium, calm. So one of the, I think, unfortunate side effects of stoicism is not being able to really pump yourself up and get super excited. Um, because it is you can't have it both ways you know you can't dull the lows and still have the highs Um, that's kind of cheating so when I got the Netflix show I was so this was when I was in the middle of my stoic journey I was so excited I was just like so I just was screaming you could have heard me here in Adelaide Um, and as things do with TV shows a number of things went wrong and things that were outside of my control but maybe a lot of shows get greenlit and then they don't just for whatever reason they you know because of COVID or funding they don't get made so you have a a massive high and then something gets cancelled or taken away from you you then have the corresponding low which is you know homeostasis it's you know getting into balance and so I had that you know it's still getting made but you know I had a number of lows that and I now temper naturally temper how I feel when things go right because I think well they're going right for now but you know I mean the show could bomb don't quote me on
1: that (laughs) it won't
2: won't. it's going to be amazing
3: a lot of the work on this particular book and I guess also on the Netflix series had to be done during COVID and I think one of the real values of this book is the way in which you have applied these principles to the pandemic that we all went to, because it shows you the next time that something happens that is beyond all of our control, you can at least control your reactions. I wonder if you can talk through the ways in which you applied these lessons during the pandemic.
2: I mean, it's funny with the pandemic, it does feel, for me anyway, a long way away and a lot of publishers and my agent was, they were a bit hesitant about setting something in the pandemic because everyone was sick of it at the time. And there's a sense of like, do we really want to read about it now? But um, I noticed, I think I did a, I was trying to do a story about it for the Guardian, which is like, there's very little literature of the Spanish flu. Like it's just doesn't really, I think the Virginia Woolf, you know, wrote something, but there's not much of it in the culture. And that's because I think people were so sick of it they didn't want to read about it or write about it and I thought long and hard before incorporating the pandemic in this but then I thought this is so kind of you know ancient like going through a plague it's a very ancient human experience that that happens with you know some regularity not in our lifetimes but it's something that the ancients experience that I'm writing about and so I'm experiencing it now I'll incorporate that into the book
3: yeah so I think a lot of your practical learning came as you applied those lessons during the pandemic yeah, definitely so
2: one of the main things I found the 5k rule I don't know if you guys had it here the 5k rule really just was like what's the point if I because I was my 5k ended on the sands of Bondi Beach not the water and it was an extra 100 meters so I was I was kind of like oh really and a lot of the Stoics were exiled. A lot of the philosophers were exiled in both the Greek and Roman periods. And so a lot of their writing came out of exile and out of having being in circumstances that they didn't particularly like. But they used that time in exile to... Um, some of them got fit. One of them called it like a... It's like going kind of like an ancient version of boot camp because you just <laughs> eat figs and grass and stuff and you swim... You know so they took what was a situation where you're constrained or exiled and they said what can we do with this is it dead time or is it a lifetime and dead time is when you complain you just binge watch or binge drink you wish for it to be over you, you you're hating it and then a lifetime is like I can't get anywhere except for this 5k I'm going to go on a different walk each day and fully explore this or I'm going to use this time to do a project that I needed to do, uh, or that I wanted to do, but I've never had time, I'm going to learn a new skill online. Whatever it is, that is a very stoic approach to lockdowns.
3: Another chapter of the book that is um, fascinating, I think, is the idea of trying to imagine not just the deaths of the people that you love. Um, One of the conundrums of life is that we will lose absolutely everyone we love. Everyone you love is going to die. And Um, but also trying to apply the principles to your own death, to fear your own death less. Could you talk us through that chapter, which I think uh, it is actually the last chapter of the book, isn't Hmm. it, the death? Fittingly, it's the last chapter. I mean,
2: the Stoics saw death as a kind of test and they prepared their whole lives for it. I'll just whip through the four Stoic virtues, courage, justice, wisdom and temperance, but they particularly saw courage as a... um, virtue that could really be tested in death and so in a way they welcomed it like you like a well prepared student would welcome an exam you know you've been working towards this and a lot of them or some of the main ones had really grisly deaths like uh um Seneca famously tried to kill himself after being ordered by Nero to uh suicide and so he drank hemlock that didn't work then he tried to slit his wrists but his veins were too old so he didn't bleed out then he prepared a, a very hot bath and tried to like suffocate on the steam, and, and that, that's what killed him. But while he was doing this, he was surrounded by his students, his wife. It took half a day, I think. You know, he just very methodically tried to end his life without hysteria because he'd been practicing for it. So, how you would do that today is I tend to think. Like, if I go to the doctor, even if it's routine, I tend to think, oh, maybe this is the day I get terrible news. Or if I'm crossing a busy road, I'll be like, maybe I won't make it to the other side. Now, that (laughs) sounds morbid, but it's a way of that practice, that tiny practice, because one day I won't get to the other side or one day there will be bad news. And I've had these little inoculations, these little touches of it over the decades. Or maybe it will happen after this panel. You know, it's just... It's just something that is, I think we should not be afraid of, we should demystify and we should prepare for, because we're no different from the Stoics. You know, they're not an alien race, they're humans just like us, and we still have the same kind of mortal limitations.
3: There are ways in which we can apply Stoicism to the things we see around us all the time. And one of the things you mentioned to me was trolling, that a lot of people are quite agitated and upset by what they see online. And the ways in which women, in particular, are subjected to really vile and repulsive um, bullying online. And you thought that um, some of the lessons in this book might apply. Tell us what you mean.
2: I mean, one of the most amazing things about the Stoics is that, of course, the internet didn't exist then, but they seem to predict it really eerily. Like, there's so much in there about dealing with insults, dealing with you know bad information or misinformation. So much about the mob and contagion and it just sat very comfortably with our modern moment and it felt in a way like like you read Chaucer, or you read stuff that came after Stoicism and it feels like a lot older than Stoicism, which feels super fresh. Um, so the Stoics had this thing of, um, I mean, a number of things. One is not finding out what people are saying about you. I mean, if anyone's read the Prince Harry book, um, <laughs> Spare, you know, he, he, goes, he talks about going into an absolute lather from reading what the tabloids write about him and getting so upset the stoics would say why are you reading that you know like you can't control what the press write about you you can only control your reaction and probably the best thing that you can do is is not read any of it because you don't need that information the other thing is uh not getting caught up in pylons so like twitter pylons are really i think a really negative they suck time. They're they're poisonous. Even if you think you're acting for the good, and you're being a social justice warrior, it's still feeding into a, a fairly negative spiral. And so they just like don't accept the trolling. Don't accept the criticism of people that don't know you um, on social media. But also don't accept the flattery. You know, it's that homeostasis thing. So ignore the trolls but also ignore the people that say you're incredibly wonderful um, (laughs) that would be imbalanced and I've had a really you know I've had a decades-long relationship with Twitter sometimes intense sometimes I'm not on there much but it doesn't really affect my tranquility much anymore because I mute everyone that doesn't follow me so I never see anything that isn't from someone that's already got a an understanding of my shtick.
3: I wondered if deleting your social media is in fact a stoic principle as opposed to just moderating your reaction to what was said. I don't know, this is kind of a,
2: where feminism and stoicism intersect, which is like, I think, well, would the blokes do it? You know, like you've got all the women deleting their Twitter accounts because they're being subject to harassment. So then you have women effectively taking themselves out of the public square or taking themselves out of the conversation. Um, which they need to do for mental health, but then you have an imbalanced platform. The stoic in me would say, if you like Twitter and you like getting information from it and you get enough out of it, stay on it, but practice stoicism. Like for example, it's about thinking, well, someone's view on my appearance, I can't change their view and I don't really care and I'm not losing my tranquility. So they can say all the stuff they want and that reflects on their character, not your character, their character which is, it's out of your control. And your character might be just to laugh at it and move
3: on. It's a Herculean effort though, isn't it? When you're the subject of a pylon, but it it must take all of your inner resources to overcome that level of bullying, particularly I think from people you don't know. I think it's better
2: from people you don't know than being bullied by people you know. Look, I got bullied very badly for um, writing a joke column about how since Trump got in, I was, I'd was i stopped going to the gym um, and I couldn't open jars anymore. But look, it was a silly column, um, but it went viral, and particularly in the US, and then I was the subject of a segment on Fox News. Um, <laughs> and I was in Castle, Maine that night, and I fell asleep, you know, looking at my phone, and oh, life's wonderful. And then I woke up, and then it was like, My phone had exploded. There were hundreds of, if not thousands, of derogatory messages about my appearance, about my vibe. Um, So it was very, very distressing.
3: But yet I'm still here. Talk to us, if you can, about moderation and how you can apply it to all different aspects of your life. But you gave it a go with alcohol. Talk about that.
2: Yeah, sure. So one of the four stoic virtues, we've got justice, courage, wisdom and temperance which is moderation so this is how the Stoics lived Um, they believed that that whole thing about tranquility ataraxia being in homeostasis that applies to food and drink they were also in an abundant the Roman Stoics were in an abundant time it was you know Seneca had a huge vineyard of course and (laughs) you know he had one dinner party where he flew in I think it was 500 marble tables or didn't fly them in he (laughs) had them constructed but you know knowing seneca he would have flown them in um so they had these huge dinner parties these massive banquets it was very excessive and so they did need a way of their bodies and their minds and their spirits coping with all that excess so temperance was a virtue teachings around alcohol are really interesting because it's so intricate that it makes me think they must have had a real issue with it because they had practices called being, I mean, Epictetus calls it being a water taker. So you have to go somewhere where there's amazing wine and you have to be disciplined enough to say, no, I'll just have water, please. And so you you take the water. And also at a banquet, when the food comes around to you, you just take the smallest bit and make sure it keeps going around. And that's in life as well as in food. You pass it around, you share. The main reason for temperance is for rational thinking. So um, the Stoics believe that one of the things that mark us out as different from animals is our ability to reason, and when you drink to excess, you, you know, you compromise your ability to, to reason and to use rational thought, so they guarded their rational thinking very highly, and so, you know, kind of frowned on getting drunk or being addicted, you know, they, they said addiction compromises rational thinking, drunkenness compromises rational thinking, but then they also said that it's actually really boring if you are a teetotaler and you go on about it yeah, and you yeah, just yeah, talk right. about all if the If you that. give up drinking, don't <laughs> tell anyone. Yeah, they were very specific about that. Yeah. They said, it's your choice if you choose not to drink, but don't talk about it because it's seen as kind of bragging or seen as judging other people. And they also said don't talk about being a Stoic,
3: so I'm being very unstoic, by even (laughs) being here. I have to open the floor to questions. Um, I'll try to get through as many of them as we can.
2: I just had a question about how you think Stoicism intersects with something like political or social activism, because it seems to lend itself to a kind of acceptance. So, Mm. for example, if you were in a toxic work culture, do you just accept that you are quite powerless in a large organisation? Or do you join your union and have a very hard slog to achieve very little,
0: but try your best to do that? Where's the balance oh, there? You such, be-
1: a such a great question. Such a great
2: question. Because it's the question me and Andrew asked ourselves for like two years. Like how do we, how do we do this? How do we have social justice with stoicism? And it took ages to come up with an answer. And that was, well, one of the principles, one of the four virtues, is justice. So the stoics obviously put justice at the heart of their project so how do you achieve justice within the control test i think you're realistic about what you as an individual can achieve but with an example of joining a union or a protest movement or a group of like-minded people you might be able to say i personally can't do anything about climate policy but I can join a group that can then work through the processes or take direct action or um, in, in my individual life make choices like not to fly or whatever. So it's using the control test with your political aim and then you know, moving towards the direction you wanna go in. Um, I think a union is a really good example of how you would try and change things I mean, there's a lot of intersection with Buddhism and Stoicism, which I I find really interesting. Um, The Stoics certainly were not passive, like they were political leaders, they were huge, I guess, kind of change makers in their societies. So they weren't kind of sitting around saying, we can't do anything, but they were realistic about the, I guess, the
3: fact that progress can be a bit slow. such a great question. Yes, please, you're next in line, go ahead.
0: (laughs) Just a quick one on the, the four virtues. Did they emerge from any one of the three exponents of of Stoicism, or did that just generally come out of the teachings of Stoicism mm. generally?
2: The Roman Stoics that I spoke of, they practiced Stoicism. They didn't actually Germanate. They didn't formulate the ideas. So um, the four virtues were around. This is as far as I know in the Greek times, and would have emerged from the kind of Greek school of Stoicism, and then. Seneca, Epictetus and Marcus Aurelius carried on the Greek tradition, which included the four virtues.
0: Hi, Bridget. If you could just comment, um, when you talked about the Stoics rehearsing for
3: death, um, I immediately thought of um, Brené Brown, who talked about foreboding joy. And she said, joy is the most vulnerable emotion we experience. And if you cannot tolerate joy, what you do is start dress rehearsing tragedy. (laughs) So I just thought, yeah. And also just in terms of temperance, for the vulnerable, it could be a slippery slope towards something like anorexia. So if you could-
2: Absolutely. so with the anorexia one. Anorexia is a form, you know, it's just the other side of excess, you know. There's gluttony and there's deprivation and temperance lies in the middle. So I would say if you had an eating disorder, the Stoics would say, you're not exercising temperance and so temperance would be to actually eat more food. Easier than done if you're treating people with an eating disorder, but that that would be their basic um, philosophy around that. You know, I used to like Brene Brown before I started this book and then I've, <laughs> I've, I've just, um, I know she's got a lot of fans, but the Stoics are anti-vulnerability. They're not into vulnerability at all and I know that that's a cornerstone of a lot of Brene Brown's um, work. The Stoics, believed in joy. They were, you know, I didn't know any of them personally, but from reading their writings and studying their lives, they were incredibly joyful people. Um, And they argued that if you're aware of death and how, like, short life is, you increase your joy because you realise it's finite. Like, you don't have all the time in the world to, you know, enjoy the sunshine or enjoy a day off or enjoy a sleep in or enjoy a cuddle or whatever it is. These things are precious because they will pass. And so there's joy in remembering that they are, you know, they aren't going to be with us forever.
3: I have a simple question. In the census last year, I'm one of 44% of
2: South Australians who said no religion. Mm-hmm. What did you put as a supporting stoicism in ah. the census? Uh, did you put it in a blank where you have to write it in or did you tick no religion, and I just, because the movement towards no religion in the Australian population consistently increases. And I just want to ask, what did you tick? What would you advise me in the future to tick yeah. in that in that square? And uh, finally is, I agree with Marcus Aurelius is one of the great figures of us amateur historians who love to read about. Thank you and congratulations on your writing. Oh, thanks so much. I didn't do the census can't remember why. It's more of a philosophy uh, than a religion, okay. isn't it? Yeah. I'm culturally Catholic, so, you know, that's where my kind of, my culture is. However, if Stoic was a religion or whatever, I mean, if Stoic was a thing I could put down, I would. I want to do more reading on this, but I just wonder what life would have been like if Stoicism had have kept going and there was no Christianity. We'd be in an incredible I think we'd be in an incredible world. Um, The Greek Stoics accepted men and women, slaves and free people to study with them in 350 BC. There was, I mean, the Romans went a bit backwards, but there was all sorts of equality, the kind of rationality was, you know, the highest principle. There were amazing advances in that time around kind of astronomy and ethics. Yeah, so I have a bit of a mourning for the work that was lost um, probably burnt by the Christians from the early Stoic like I'm really sad that that doesn't exist anymore and I'm, I'm kind of sad for humanity that that line of Stoicism wasn't allowed to continue because I think it's it's got so much beauty in it and it's um it makes so much sense and it's by humans
3: for humans so it's a beautiful answer as well and we have time for one last question please go ahead Some time ago, I joined a group and we followed or tried to follow Epicurean materialism. So, that's what I'd put in (laughs) that slot. So, reading your book was a great comfort to me because I felt that Epicurean materialism is so misunderstood and Mm. I'm a retired chef, Mm. so it was further misunderstood. Mm. It was all about great dinners mm. and drinking too much which I'm sure you know is not the case. Do you link stoicism to epicurus at all? Because mm. I know he was long before Marcus Aurelius, etc. So where do you sit with the thinkings of epicurus? I love epicurus. So
2: great. So Early on when I was doing this project, I was reading a lot of Epicurus and thinking, why did I sign up to do something on stoicism? This guy is so much more interesting. And I love the whole idea of the school. And that existed in the time of the Greek Stoics, So they were in competition with each other. The Stoics believed much more in engagement with the world. So they were much more political. They were more involved in you know, family and community life, whereas Epicureans were of the mind, in community, like outside a regular kind of civic life. So they're adjacent to it. So in a way, stoicism was slightly more practical. But I think Epicureanism, I think it's going to come back. You know, there's an amazing writer that I really like called Jenny O'Dell who's written a book called How to Do Nothing, and she's got a follow-up on time. But it's about being in nature, enjoying the moment, enjoying where we are because it's all we've got. So... I feel like once people have thrown off the shackles of capitalism, Epicureanism
0: is going to get another go. Reasons not to worry, how to be stoic in chaotic times. That's the title of Bridget Delaney's book, and I'm adding that one to my reading pile, that's for sure. I'm all for guidance on reasons not to worry. Give me all the reasons. Bridget joined Carolyn Overington in conversation at the Adelaide Festival, and if you are planning events for a festival or Uh, a gathering near you, get in touch. Our little team really loves to know what's happening across Australia and the world. So email us at ideas underscore rn at abc.net.au. That's ideas underscore rn at abc.net.au. Get in touch. I'm Natasha Mitchell. I look forward to joining you next time on Big Ideas. Bye. You've been listening to an ABC podcast.